You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my uh, joy and privilege uh, to be able to share uh, the Word of God this morning from Colossians Uh, chapter 3. If you're a guest, let me just reiterate the welcome that Liz uh, gave you. I do hope that um, you will take one of those steps uh, of connecting to to the life of the body here. We we really do believe that the church is, before it is anything else, it is a a people to belong to uh, rather than simply uh, an event to attend on a Sunday. And so I'd love to uh, get to know you in any any one of those uh, contexts. Um, If you've been around uh, for, for the last couple of weeks, and what you know is that we've been walking um, at a brisk pace through uh, the book of Colossians. And uh, essentially, in the book of Colossians, what we are being encouraged uh, to do by Paul is to keep Christ at the center of everything, right? Um, and this is why uh, we, just, we just see uh, the whole theme of the book wrapped up in both his person and his work, who he is and what he has done on our behalf. And so up to this point, kind of what we've seen is that, that we've been summoned, right? We've been summoned to delight in the supremacy of who Jesus is, this singular Savior, right? We've been called to, to delight in Him alone. We've been called to trust in Him alone. Um, and today uh, we'll be called by Paul um, to live in allegiance uh, to Him alone. And uh, there's probably no more fitting thing for us to be called to um, today, this day, um, before what happens on Tuesday. So let's pray, um, and we'll jump into Colossians 3. Father, thank you so much uh, for this morning, Lord, just for the opportunity to be gathered together as your people. And Lord, we know uh, that what you are doing in the world and what you are doing in our city transcends what's taking place in this little room. Um, Lord, there are men and women and children across the globe gathering together with us, worshiping you as holy, worshiping Jesus as sufficient, and worshiping you both in the power of the Spirit to the glory of your name. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that. We rejoice that that is true not only in circumstances that are favorable towards that, like ours, but it's also happening in circumstances that are not favorable, um, where our brothers and sisters Uh, gather under the threat of death. And so we pray that your spirit would empower all of us to worship you rightly this morning. And we pray, God, that your word, as we approach it this morning uh, in in the sermon, that it would dwell in us richly, uh, producing in us, Lord, uh, a renewal after the image of our creator. Uh, Lord, we need your spirit for that. So please be with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so like, <laughs> like the last couple of weeks, we've got a whole lot of text to, to get through. Um, and so what we need to do, right, is just kind of walk through it verse by verse so that we can synthesize it. So the next few minutes are going to feel like we're drinking from a fire hose, but it's going to be okay. We'll synthesize it when we, when we get to the end. So starting in verse 1, uh, going through verse 2, this is what it says. If then, right, so already right there we know that this is connected to what was shared with us last week. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so what is it that, that Paul is addressing here, right? He's coming out of verse 29. One of the difficult parts about preaching sermons, right, is that we have to cut it off somewhere. And yet, this is utterly linked to that verse. And what did, what did Paul just tell us in verse 23 of chapter 2? He said that religious practices, right, asceticism, like all these rituals and festivals and practices, he says, those are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He's saying that in and of your own self-control, in and of your own ability, right, you, you can't stop the indulgence of the flesh. So, this is his response to that, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Essentially, last week, Right, told us what not to trust and what not to do. And this week we're being told what to trust and what to do. Keep reading Colossians 3, 3-4. through 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So what does he go on to say? You have died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. In fact, Christ is your very life. And you will appear with Christ in glory. What's Paul reminding them of? He's reminding them of their unity with Christ, that they are inextricably and in some ways inexplicably linked to, united to, this Jesus, so much so that we experience all that is His as if it were ours, and indeed it is, right? His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension into glory, all of it ours by virtue of our unity with Him, our union to Him. Keep reading, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, right? So now, Paul's going to get into telling us some things that we should and should not do, but where does that proceed from? That proceeds from the knowledge that we're united to Jesus. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And if we were, if we were walking through this a bit more slowly, what we might notice is that there's two, two lists of vices in sets of five, right? Now that first set of vices, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Those are all related to sexual sin, which Paul goes on to describe holistically as idolatry, right? He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And what is idolatry? Well, it's to supplant the rightful God with a God of our own making. And so what is Paul telling the, the, the church at Colossae? He's telling them that, look, this sexual immorality, these evil desires, this impurity, this passion, this covetousness, that stuff inhibits us 
from being able to worship God as we've been called by Jesus and in Jesus to worship God, right? It impedes our relationship with God. The second list of vices, the second list of vices all have a bearing on our social relationships within the church, right? He says, put away all of these anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, right? What's he saying? When we are angry, when we're wrathful, when we're malicious, when we're slanderous, when we're obscene, we impede our ability to relate with one another as we've been called by Jesus and through Jesus to relate with one another. So what's Paul getting at here? He's telling us to follow what Jesus told us to do, right? Jesus is questioned in a moment in the Gospels by the, by the Pharisees. They, they come, they're trying to trick him, and it, of course it never works out for them. But, um, but they ask him, what, which commandment is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds with, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Paul is saying, these sexual desires, they impede our relationship with God and these interpersonal sins impede our relationship with one another, which actually means that we need to put to death that which keeps us from loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And we need to put to death those things that keep us from loving our neighbors as we would love ourselves. That's what he's calling us to do, to put away the things that would keep us from doing what God has called us to do, to put to death what we have already died to, as Romans 6 tells us. Keep reading, Colossians 3 verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of of its creator. Now here we need to pay attention to the tenses of the verbs so that we really understand what Paul is saying, right? He says that we have put off the old self and that we have put on the new self, telling us that something has already happened, right? That because we are united to Jesus, what was old in us has been put away and that we've been given an entirely new self, right? That in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. A whole change of identity has already happened in the life of the believer. So in exhorting the church at Colossae, Paul is only telling them to bring their behavior in line with their identity. And yet, there's an ongoing sense when he says that we are being renewed that that is something that is currently taking place, that our transformation into the image of our Creator is something that is ongoing, that that's still happening. So although something has happened to us, there's still a sense in which there are things that need to continue to happen to us. That is that we are being renewed in the image of our Creator. Keep reading, verse 11 Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ 
is all and he is in all. Everyone in the church defined by Jesus. He is everything and he is in everything. Everyone. Verse 12, put on then as as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so in putting off the old self, we're putting off those things that would impede our relationship with God and our ability to love one another as we love ourselves. And we are putting on the new self, which is driven towards virtues that express our love for God and for one another. The new self is driven towards these virtues that express love in that they benefit others more than they benefit us. And believers are called to put on love above all of these because that is what ultimately empowers them. And what we're beginning to see is that Paul is reverse engineering what it is that he would have the church at Colossae to do. Keep reading in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Right? So the new self is driven to love because the peace of Christ rules in the heart of those who believe. So believers should relate to one another in such a way that both facilitates and demonstrates the peace that Christ has secured for them, not only with God, but with one another. I right, keep reading verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So where do we find this peace? How do we ensure that our hearts are ruled in this peace? By allowing the Word of God to dwell in our hearts richly. By teaching and by admonishing one another in all wisdom. By singing psalms about the Word of God. And hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And then we arrive at this verse that many of us have probably heard before. And whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Okay, breathe. What is it, again, essentially that this text is calling us to? There's a thousand little rabbit trails we could get off into, right, that we could talk about. We could talk in depth about sexual sin. We could talk in depth about about how our our sin towards one, one another fractures our ability to display the love and glory of God to the world around us. We could talk about how we're duty-bound to forgive one another, regardless of whether we like one another in the moment. We, right, we could, I mean, on and on, I could give you 14 new sermons right now from this text. But essentially, in its essence, what is it calling us to? It's simply calling us to be who we've been called and created in Christ to be. That's it. It's calling us to an allegiance to our new dwelling place, 
which is above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God in God's kingdom. We are now citizens through Jesus, and so we're called to live in allegiance to that kingdom. Let me me put it this way. Growing up when I was a teenager, my dad, every time I would leave the house, if he knew I was leaving the house, depending on the time, um, every time I would leave the house, my dad would say these words, son, remember who you are and whose you are. And then he would always add this tagline, just in case it wasn't clear, you're not mine, you're his, talking about God. What was my dad doing in that moment? Well, my dad knew that every time I walked out into the world, that Christ's definition of who I am and whose I am would be challenged. That depending upon the contents of that day and depending upon the people that I spoke to during that day, that the world might tell me I was great that it might tell me I was not so great, that it might tell me I was rich, that it might tell me I was poor, that it might tell me I was virtuous, that it might tell me I was evil. And what my dad was trying to help me understand is that regardless of anyone or anything, what was true of me is that I am in Christ. That's who I am. And because I am in Christ, I belong to God. That's whose I am. And I may not have fully understood it at the time, but my dad was building into me a reminder to live like I am who I am and like I belong to whom I belong. And so I think when we read this text, Rather than simply a list of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, Paul is speaking to us as a spiritual father saying, remember who you are and whose you are. You are in Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are His, inextricably, inexplicably His. So live like it. It's as simple as that. Live like you are in Christ and like you belong to God. And you know what? You know what strikes me about this? What strikes me about this is that it means, it means that when we sin, we are not living into who we truly are. Rather, we are living into who we are not. We're a poser. Right, So often when we look at sin, we think, oh man, I'm, I'm a poser in the kingdom of God. That's not true. You're a poser in the kingdom of the world because in Jesus, you've already been brought to the kingdom of God. And so what that means is that the awkward thing for us is, is not that, that Jesus has saved us, it's that we're acting like he hasn't. In calling us to put off the old self and put on the new self, he's telling us to stop 
frosting our tips, wearing the puka shell necklace, and pretending like Hollister is an actual surf brand when you've never been on a surfboard in your life, right? That's what we're being called to do. It's just that awkward, if not more, when we walk in our sin because in Christ we've been given a new self that is devoid of those things. And so what is it? What is it that drives kind of this continued failure? Because I know some of you already, even maybe just looking in the mirror this morning, looked upon yourself, named that besetting sin, and said, this is just what it's always going to be. Why do we fail to live into this new self that we've been given that's already ours, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus graciously gave it to us by uniting us to Him? And I think the answer is in the text. We don't put on our new clothes. We don't put on our new self because we're either reluctant or we simply feel unable to put off the old self, the new, the, the old clothes. And I think what that, what that ultimately betrays for us, brothers and sisters, is that we have a weak understanding of just what Christ did on the cross and the power that He has now bestowed upon you by His Spirit. Now listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying you don't know what Christ did. I'm saying you have a weak understanding. I'm saying you may know something, but you haven't been renewed in that knowledge. And isn't that what we're being called to here? To put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of His Creator. So it's not just a knowledge that sits up here and that we passively assent to, but it's a knowledge that actually changes who we are and how we live. We may have the knowledge of what Christ has done, but we're not being renewed in that knowledge. We're not finding the strength to put to death what is earthly in us because we still functionally believe that we are beholden to earthly powers. When what we saw last week is that our Lord and Savior has been set above all authorities, given all dominion over every ruler, every authority, every power in the heavenly realm and in the earthly. And so that's what's so miraculous about what happened on the cross, right? On the cross, this great and authoritative and supreme Jesus was brought low into human flesh and not only to dwell in it, but to then be killed in it. And He did this so that by His power, He might not just mitigate, not just set aside, not just sort of barely one up, but that He might obliterate sin, that He might crush it for good. And so what it means for us now to walk in line with Christ is to walk in the crushing and the obliterating of sin in our own lives by the power that Jesus already displayed in His ability to do so on the cross.
And you see, this is why Jesus is the hero every time we put on the new self. You see, this is, this is what I think ultimately is at the heart of all of this. We rely on Jesus for our mental, emotional, and spiritual comfort. But then we go out and think we have to prove that He's done what He's done in our own strength. And yet, if nothing else, what Jesus' life and death and resurrection is a testimony to, and what the whole Bible is telling us, is that self-control isn't enough. That in and of your own self-control, you can't do it. That's the story of the whole Bible. That's David, right? A man after God's own heart, sitting on top of his palace, looking down and seeing Bathsheba and going, you know what? God's not God anymore. She is. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness reigned and ruled in the life of David, and it expressed itself in idolatry. His self-control wasn't enough. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't just die to give us better self-control. He died to give us a better self, a new self, an entirely different self, one that we couldn't conjure in and of our own power and ability. And so we're not empowered by our self-control. We're empowered by Jesus' on our behalf. You see, last week we talked about Christianity being the great equalizer and showing us that everyone is a sinner before God, needing Christ's work outside of their own for any hope of salvation. Well, the same continues to be true in the process of being made into the image of Jesus. We don't just need Jesus' power for salvation. We need His power for sanctification. We need His power. And so even as Paul begins to tell us how to live morally, right, he wants us to remember that that is still true, that new self-living doesn't happen when we're great, but because Jesus is great. Christ died for our sins so that we could die to our sins. He was raised to life so that we could live a new life, one that is hidden with Him in God. And so there's no heavenly status to strive for. Rather, we are to make that heavenly status the guidepost for all of our thinking and our acting. All of it. That's the call of the text. That's what Jesus has accomplished in His person, in His work on our behalf. So how do we live this out, right? I mean, that's all great and good. Those are all theological realities that we can rest upon, that we can assent to mentally. And the reality is is that tomorrow we're still going to wake up and we're going to look in the same mirror and we're going to most likely feel that same tinge of discouragement. How do we actually put to death, right? That is, kill, mortify that which is earthly in us. How do we put off the old self, right? I 
some of us may be dissatisfied with this answer because I, I, I think it is somewhat simplistic. But I think it's enough. We put off the old self as we are putting on the new self. And here's what I mean by that. We, we allow the knowledge that we're being given in the Word of God to us to actually renew us. We let our knowledge of who Jesus is and what He's done inform who we are and thus what we actually do. You see, so many of us live a relationship with Jesus up in this realm that never makes its way out to these. I'll give you an example, personal. So I'll just come clean for you guys this morning. I have a serious problem with needing approval. And what that means is that more often than not, I am prone to lying in order to cover myself. Right, verse 9 was pretty clear about that. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. What is he saying? Lying is out of step with what is new in me. And when I lie, sometimes it's simple things like, hey, have you heard this band before? And it's like, yeah, love that band. They're the best ever. Totally on that bandwagon. And sometimes it's big things, right? Sometimes it's, how are you doing? Oh, man, I'm fine. Everything's great. No complaints. Don't worry about me. I'm good, man. Life is peachy. But here's the reality, right? To step into putting on the new self. What it requires me to do in that moment is to recognize that I may not have heard of that band and I may not be doing fine, but who has told me that I need to? That I need to have heard of that band, that I need to be doing fine, right? Is that a need? Absolutely not. The whole basis of my faith says that I am finite meaning I can't know every minuscule band you hipsters know. And that I'm broken. That I'm not perfect yet, but I am being made perfect. And when I step into that, when I allow that knowledge, not only to just sort of sit there and percolate for ages on end, but when I actually allow it to inform the way I live, you know what it enables me to do? It enables me to say, you know what, I really don't need to lie about that. That's a stupid thing to lie about. Rather, I can live into the knowledge of who Jesus is, what he's done, and who I am on account of who Jesus is and what he has done. And I can begin to put away the practice of lying and begin to put on the humility that says, I'm finite. I don't, I don't know that, man. I'm imperfect. Life is hard. There are besetting sins in my life that are crushing me right now. And I can confess those things in humility. And as I confess those things in humility, there's a meekness that is formed in me. 
that makes no assumption about whether or not I'm better than someone else or not. You see, in being renewed in knowledge, the old self is put away, the new self is put on. It's all in resting upon what Jesus has already done on our behalf. So how do we ensure that our knowledge actually renews us? Well, um, and I think this is where we, where we conclude, right? Because unfortunately for some of us, we're being formed according to a knowledge that is broken, right? And, and I think this is especially true of us that have been in the church for a long time. And so I think the, the answer this morning is the same for the Christian that has been in church forever and for those of us in the morning who, here this morning who may say, I've been a Christian for like an hour, maybe five minutes ago, right? Paul's already been very clear where the, where the source of knowledge is, where the source of all knowledge, where the source of all wisdom is. And that is why at the end of all of this, at the end of all of these exhortations, at the end of everything that Paul would have us to do as those who are in allegiance to the new kingdom of God created in Christ by which we've been entered into it by His blood. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. both teaching and admonishing one another, right? You know what that presupposes? That means that as you read the Bible, there's going to be parts of the Bible that you go, yeah, that's good, I like that. And then there's parts that you're going to go, ah, that hurts. That the word of Christ dwelling in us richly means we will be taught and it means we'll, we will be admonished. But that we should let it dwell in us Richly through teaching, richly through admonishing, richly through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And it's at that moment, it's at that moment that when, when the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, when the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts and being expressed in humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love, it's in that moment that God cares less about what we do than about how we do it, which is why he says in verse 17, and whatever you do. So if you lay pipe for a living, right, or if you make millions of dollars on the stock market, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And let me just finish here as a, as a point of encouragement because I, I do think that many of us probably right now are living in that sort of Paul in Romans chapter 7 state where we along with Paul are saying, God, the things I want to do, I don't do those things. The things that I don't want to do, I do those things. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Who is going to help me put to death what is earthly in me? Who is going to help me put off what is old and put on what is new? 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, but make no mistake, brothers and sisters, spiritual growth is something that is progressive. It sources Jesus, but it's progressively going back to Jesus, being renewed after the image of our Creator. And so what you should probably know is that um, if you've been a Christian for a short time or for a long time, you should measure your spiritual growth in years, maybe even decades. Because if you compare yourself to you yesterday, you'll be disappointed. You will. But if you compare yourself to 10 years ago, if you've been graced by Jesus to be a Christian for that long, you'll likely be astounded by God's faithfulness to you. His faithfulness to molding you into the image of His Son. Because what God decrees comes to pass when He says He's going to do something, He does it, right? And the Bible tells us very clearly that the good work that He's begun in us, He purposes to complete. And so as we grow older and look back upon the years of life in Christ that we've been given, we should be able to say with John Newton this quote, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. And I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you for the opportunity to step into your presence without fear. Knowing that because our life is hidden in Christ, because our life is Christ, we have put off the old self and we have put on the new. And we are right now through your word, dwelling richly in us, being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. Thank you, Lord, this morning that you have not only provided for us a mental image, a word image, but, Lord, that we have a physical image of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that will physically sustain us in the same way, albeit a shadow, of the way that you sustain us by the person and the work of Jesus. So I pray, Father, that we would come this morning to the table with a singular delight in a singular Savior, that we would singularly trust in Him for our salvation, and that we would be singularly allied to Him in all that we do whether in word or in deed, to the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We pray all these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.